25 years ago, a man named Edgar Wisnett, a former NASA engineer and a Bible student, predicted the return of Christ, and he predicted that the return of Christ would occur in 1988, sometime between September the 11th and September the 13th. He published two books about his predictions. Some of you are very familiar with one of them. Uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return and Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And then another book on borrowed time. Uh, 300,000 copies of 88 Reasons were mailed free of charge to ministers all across America. Four and a half million copies were sold in bookstores and in other locations. Uh, I think it would be safe to say that his book's probably not selling uh, well today. Um, he continued to issue various predictions concerning the return of Christ after that, all the way up until 1997. But again, it was no surprise that he got virtually no attention from anyone. Most recently, some of us are more familiar with this name, Harold Camping, who is a Christian radio broadcaster, predicted that Jesus would return to earth last year on May the 21st. And at that time, Christians would go to heaven and there would be five months that would follow there where there would be plagues on earth and millions of people would die each day. And all this would come to an end on October the 21st, 2011 with the final destruction of the world. Camping had once said this before in 1994 that these same things would occur. After May 21st, 2011 passed without his predictions occurring, Camping, uh, for the most part, avoided press interviews. And it's understandable why he would do that. Uh, Camping admitted in a private interview that he no longer believed that anybody could know the time of the return of Christ. In March 2012, he stated that his attempt to predict a date was sinful. (coughs) Praise God, he repented of his sin. And that his critics had been right all along, emphasizing the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 36. Of that day and hour knoweth no man. How do you read your Bible and miss that verse when it comes to predicting the return of Christ? These men with their predictions no doubt struck fear in the hearts of many people. People sold all their belongings to help get the word out and struck fear in a lot of people. Paul in our text today is dealing with this issue of fear. Fear at the return of Jesus. Paul, in complete contrast to wisdom and camping, instructs the Thessalonian Christians as well as us today, Christians today, and those throughout the history of the world, as to how Christians are to view the return of Christ. And it's not a fearful thing. That's what Paul is going to tell us. Last week, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we saw Paul deal with the question of what happens to believers when they die before Jesus returns. A question we all want to know the answer to. And we're able to study Paul's teaching and learn uh, that there's a tremendous comfort for all of us who lose our Christian loved ones before the return of Christ. Today, the question has to do still with the return of Jesus. He's continuing that teaching. The question is um, something of the idea of how do you prepare for the return of Jesus? And the first three verses of this passage that we're going to look at today, the Thessalonians, similar maybe a little bit to the people who are listening to wisdom and camping, are interested in trying to nail down the timing of Jesus' return. You may be thinking, man, this happened a long time ago as well, didn't it? It's something that's happened throughout the history of the world. People are trying to predict and understand and want to know the return of Christ, when it's going to happen. The Thessalonians are asking Paul, You know, wouldn't it help us to know when Jesus is coming again so we could get better prepared? I think 
in our human minds, logically, that's probably a good reason to want to know the answer to that so we can be better prepared when He does come. And Paul responds to that question sort of with the same answer that Jesus gave His disciples. I read the verse earlier, Matthew twenty four thirty six. but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That verse tells us one person knows when the return of Christ is going to happen. That's God the Father. No one else knows. Not even Jesus Himself knows that day. But then Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians, as well as us today, how Christians are to go in, how we are to go about preparing for the return of Jesus. That's the main idea of the text today. How to prepare for the return of Jesus. As Christians, that's something we are very interested in, right? How do we prepare? That's what Paul is going to tell us today. So if you will look at verses 1 through 3 here. If you're outlining, here's what uh, 1 through 3 will look like. Jesus' return is certain, but it's unpredictable. Jesus' return is certain, but it's unpredictable. Verse 1. Listen to Paul. He answers this question. Right off the bat. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You see those words there, now concerning? Again, those are words that Paul uses to let us know there's a change in the subject matter. In fact, it lets us know there's another question that the Thessalonians have asked of Paul. When is Jesus coming, Paul? We want to know so we can be better prepared. How do we know that's the question that was asked of Paul? Well, notice what it says there. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, the words times and seasons there refers to the end times. That's what those words are talking about, the end time. The Thessalonians were curious about the timing of the end time events. Actually, the Thessalonians are saying to Paul, we'd like to hear more from you about the timing of Jesus' return. Paul has taught them before when he was with them about Jesus coming again. He was with them there in Thessalonica. He he went in and preached the gospel. A lot of people were saved. They heard the gospel, repented and trusted in Christ. A church was planted and Paul got ran out of town. And during that time, Paul taught them a lot of theology. He taught them a lot of things about God. He taught them that Jesus was going to return. But they are wanting to know, we want to hear more about the timing, Paul. We want to know more about when. Can you pin this down for us? And notice Paul's response. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, what does he tell them? You have no need... To have anything written to you. That's a very nice way of telling you, drop it. We don't need to discuss this anymore. You have no need to have anything written to you. Why would Paul say such a thing? To begin with, the timing of Jesus' return and His judgment are not things for them to be worried about. Because nobody knew or could know the timing of Jesus' return. Not even Jesus Himself. In Mark chapter 13 verse 32, Jesus Himself said that He didn't even know the day. That only God the Father knew when that day was going to occur. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Jesus told the apostles, It is not for you to know times or seasons. Does that sound familiar? What was Jesus telling his disciples, his first followers there in Acts? It is not for you to know the times and the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus even told his disciples, You do not need to worry about this. God is taking care of this. It will happen when it's going to happen under His authority. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that they already knew this. Because Paul had already taught them this. Remember, he was with them for a short period of time. He told them Jesus was going to come. 
But I'm sure Paul, knowing the human mind and heart, anticipated and told them, look, you don't need to worry about when. You just need to know and believe that Jesus will come. God the Father is the only one that knows that. And so, they're like most of us. They think, Paul forgot. We'll sneak this question again. Maybe he'll slip up and give us an answer. Look at verse 2. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says, You don't need for me to write to you about the timing of Jesus' return. I've already taught you about that. Paul tells them it would be useless. That there's no point in me writing to you about the return of Jesus because you are what? What does he tell them there? You're already what? Fully aware. That's a nice way of again saying, You know all you need to know and there's not going to be any more told to you. Why? Because God the Father is the only one that knows when the return of Christ. You know that nobody knows the date, Paul says. You know that no one knows that date, and therefore you're not going to know it either. That's what he's saying. What is it they're fully aware of? Verse 2, he says, You yourselves are fully aware, notice what it says, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. See, Paul has already taught them, Jesus is going to come, but His coming will be like what? A thief in the night. He says, you're already aware of that. I've already told you that. Paul here in verse 2 uses the first of two metaphors to illustrate how Jesus is going to come. Not when, but how He's going to come. He says, He will come how? Like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus even used these same words in Matthew chapter 24, verse 43. And here Paul tells us that Jesus will return in judgment. That's what the day of the Lord means. When you see those words there, the day of the Lord, you, you, you reference that phrase all through the Bible and it's talking about Jesus' return and with that return, a day of judgment. What's the point of this metaphor? The point is that the return of Jesus is unpredictable. That's the whole idea. He's going to come like how? A thief in the night. It's unpredictable. Now, the trouble with thieves is they don't tell us when they're coming, Right? He doesn't call you and say, uh, Brother Billy, well, he wouldn't call you brother if he's a thief because he'd probably be a believer. He'd call and say, Billy Wood, I'm coming to your house tomorrow night to take everything you've got. He's not going to do that, is he? They don't announce their arrival. They don't send out a flyer in the mail and say, Hey, next week I'm coming to your house to take everything you've got. The point is that the Lord's return is certain. Jesus is going to come, but it's unpredictable. Do you see the idea that Paul is trying to get believers to understand? Trust God that Jesus is going to come, but don't worry about when He's going to come. Just understand and and put your hope and your faith in God that Jesus is going to come, but don't worry about when. The return of Jesus is absolutely certain, but the timing is unpredictable. It's not for us to know. Look at verse 3. We see the idea of false security here. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Notice the false security. While people are saying there is peace and security, here Paul emphasizes that the return of Jesus is going to be sudden, but it's going to be unexpected. Especially for who? Unbelievers. Unlike believers, the lost have no thought of the return of Christ and the judgment that's going to accompany His return. The lost will be rejoicing in false security right up to the moment that Jesus comes. Do you see the idea of how the world is living 
in respect to God and His authority and what His Word says in relation to Jesus coming, what are they saying? There is peace and security. We have nothing to worry about. There's nothing for us to worry about. Does that sound familiar just a little bit? You go back to Genesis and what's going on there. Noah was preaching to the people that God's judgment was going to come. And what were they doing? They were just carrying on life like normal. Peace and security. Notice what comes as the lost are living in false security. Notice what it says there. Then sudden destruction will come upon who? Them. Who is them? The lost. Not the believer. Destruction does not mean that they will cease to exist. Alright? It doesn't mean annihilation. Most of the time we hear that word destruction, we think, gone. Never to be seen again. It's, it's wiped out. It's gone forever. That's not what that word means in biblical terms. The term means a loss of fellowship with God, separation from God, the loss of real life. Sudden destruction will come upon those who are not expecting Jesus to come, who could care less about Jesus coming because they're not believers to begin with, so they have no, they have no reason to care. And, and Paul says sudden destruction will come upon them. They will forever be separated from God, never to have an opportunity again to ever have fellowship with God. Separated forever with no opportunity to change the circumstances. Look at verse 3 again. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as what? Here's Paul's other metaphor. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and what does it say there? They will what? They will not escape. Here's the second metaphor. First, the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in the night. Second, destruction will come upon these people like what? Labor pains that a pregnant woman experiences. Both of these metaphors teach us that Jesus' return is going to be what? It's going to be sudden. Suddenly in the middle of the night, a thief breaks into the house. Suddenly in a pregnancy, an expectant mother, what happens? Labor begins. Right? Listen, moms, you know labor's coming, right? But you don't know when it's going to come, right? And when it shows up, it's like, it's here. That's what Paul is saying it is going to be with Jesus. At the same time, there, there appears to be no obvious difference between the thief and these labor pains. Although both are sudden, the thief is what? Unexpected, whereas the labor is what? Expected. You know that it's coming. But when these two are put together, we can say that Jesus' return, again, will be sudden and unexpected like the thief, and sudden and unavoidable like the labor pains that come during pregnancy. With the thief, there's no warning. With the labor pains, a notice is given. Notice the words there. They will not escape. What will they not escape? Destruction. Separation from God. It will be impossible, listen, it will be impossible for those who do not know Christ to escape that destruction. There's nothing that can take that away. There are no alternatives. It's either life with Jesus or eternal separation from Jesus when He comes. There is no other opportunity after that point in time. So what's the point here? The point is that Jesus' return is what? It's unpredictable. If you knew the thief was coming, 
It would be useless for the thief to try to break into your house, right? It would be absolutely useless. It's the unpredictability of Jesus' return that's being pointed out here. He is coming. You can bank your life on it. You can guarantee it, but you cannot predict it. It's unpredictable. The point is that Jesus' return is what? It's certain, but it's unpredictable. Paul makes that very clear here. The return of Jesus is absolutely certain. It's absolutely certain, but the timing is uncertain. What is Paul telling us here? Trust, hope, believe God that He is faithful, that Jesus will come for us one day, but don't worry about when He's coming. And for us, that's what? You're like, but I want to know. You ever, you ever had your children to do that? You tell them, not, not now, but, but mom, right now. I, I want it right now. So the Apostle Paul says, the way you prepare Thessalonians, and the way you prepare Red Buddians, if that's right, is not to try to figure out the date of Jesus' return. Trying to predict the timing of the return of Jesus is not the way to prepare because His return is going to be what? Sudden and without warning. Paul is saying through the Spirit, don't try as a believer to figure out when Jesus is coming. But He goes, isn't it nice of Paul? Isn't it nice of the Holy Spirit to say, but here's how you do prepare for the return of Jesus. Look with me now at verses 4 through 8. If Jesus is going to come suddenly unexpectedly and unavoidably, how do we get ready? Notice in verses 4 through 8, the way to prepare for the return of Jesus. The way to prepare for the return of Jesus. Notice verse 4, but, when you say the word but, what does it automatically put in your mind? There's a contrast going on here, right? But, there's a contrast between who? The lost and the saved. How do we know that? He says, but you, speaking to the believer, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you, how? Like a thief. Verse 5, for you are what? Children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says to the believer, there's no need for us to be alarmed by the return of Jesus. There's no need to be surprised by the sudden destruction of as the loss will be. Why? Because there's no need for that day to take us by what? Surprise. As a believer, when Jesus comes, you shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because the Scriptures have told you He is coming. Notice those words there again, but you. In contrast to those in verses 2 and 3 who are what? Unprepared, saying what? Live life, get all you can get. Let's just keep going. Everything's just fine. Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians as well as us today that they should not be caught off guard when Jesus comes. Why should the Christian not be caught off guard? Look at verse 5. For the reason for not being caught off guard, you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor are we of the darkness. Notice Paul uses the words light, day, darkness, Night. These are words of salvation. That's what these words are used for. Light is a metaphor for salvation. In Luke chapter 16, verse 8, believers are called people of light. 
In Psalm 21 verse 1, the psalmist says that the Lord is the light, is my light and my salvation. Darkness is a metaphor for lostness and sin. That's what these are being used for. Paul uses darkness in association with moral sin. And he says, you Christian are not in darkness. You are not in moral sin. You Christian are not in the deadness of sin. So therefore you have nothing to fear when Jesus comes. You are secure. Your sin has been taken care of. The Thessalonian Christians and all Christians are secure. There's no need to worry. You're not to be like those who are lost that continue to say there's peace and security. Paul says these people are going to be greatly surprised one day. They're going to be greatly surprised. People of light, people of day are those who have a relationship with Christ. They walk in the light. They can see those in darkness are what? In their sin. They're ignorant and they're surprised when the thief breaks in. Christians are not to be surprised when Jesus comes. We live in a time when, you know, very few people in our culture outside the church have any kind of anticipation of a day coming when they're going to give a reckoning or an account to God. Have you ever noticed that? And, and, and please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying this as being a judgmental. These people who are out here lost and don't know Christ or were to look at them as if they're, you know, foolish, which they can be in a certain sense. We're not to look at them judgmentally. We're to look at them as people who are what? They need to hear the gospel. They're going to be greatly surprised. But we live in a time when people say they don't have any idea that there's coming a day when we're going to have to give an account to God. They have no belief in a Savior who's going to come and judge their sin. Paul is saying, Christian, when Jesus comes, it's going to be sudden and the world is not going to be looking for it. It's like a thief in the night. It's going to be surprising, but it's certain it's going to come. Now in verses 6 through 8... Paul tells the Christian the way to get ready for Jesus. And here's where I'm sort of going to go through here and pick out these ways and say, here's how we get prepared for Jesus. Paul tells the Christian the way to get ready for Jesus, his return. He says, you don't get ready by predicting or prophesying about the return of Jesus. Who did we just read about in the introduction? What were Christians, but what were they doing? Predicting and prophesying when Jesus was going to come. And Paul's telling us here through the Holy Spirit, that's not how the believer gets ready for Jesus. We don't get ready for Jesus by arguing and beating one another up because we have different views about the millennium or about the tribulation or the rapture. There are so... As briefly as I can, there are so many different views about the millennium about the the rapture of the church. Will the church go through the tribulation? Will we be taken out? There are differing views on that. And and I want to say this. We don't get ready for Jesus coming by arguing about those things. Can we discuss them? Absolutely. And we should discuss them. They're very important things to discuss. But we shouldn't be getting ready for Jesus by arguing and beating one another up about those things. Instead, we the church get ready for Jesus, Paul says. Here's what he's saying. You get ready for Jesus by pursuing Godliness. Church, 
Redbud, we get ready for Jesus by living godly lives. Godly living and the proclamation of the gospel is what brings people out of darkness into the light. Did you pick up on that? Living godly lives does what? It reaches out to those who are in darkness who are saying peace and security and it does what? Through God's grace it pulls them out of that darkness and brings them into the light. If all you and I are doing is going around prophesying and predicting and doing that foolishly and sinning by doing it, we're not going to pull people out of the darkness into the light. Living faithful, godly lives pulls people out of the darkness into the light. Arguing will not bring people to Jesus. We can study and discuss those things. And we should, but godly living is the way Jesus says to get ready for His return. Notice verse 6. Specifically, He says, Be awake, be watchful. What does Paul mean? Being awake, being watchful is living life, living life, anticipating the return of Jesus and putting everything else in its place. Now, you said, well, you told us that we shouldn't be worried about when He's coming. That's right. But we should be watchful, anticipating that He's going to come, right? That means that you're not living this life like this life is all there is. Christian, including myself, there's days when I have to check myself and I find out that I'm living like this life is all there is. And Paul says, be awake, be watchful. If you're being awake and being watchful, anticipating the return of Jesus, now we've got to live life, right? We've got to work and take care of ourselves. But Paul is saying, be watchful, be looking for Jesus. You're living this life knowing that there's going to be a day when Jesus comes and this world will be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth. And for that reason, you don't prize too highly things that are going to pass away. You know, in the last ten years, Debbie and I have moved quite a bit from Georgia to North Carolina. And when we got to Wake Forest, we moved to this apartment. And to save money, we moved to this apartment. Then when we really wanted to save money, we moved to this little bitty box thing that we lived in for a while. And we saved money. And... You know, you know. after a while, when you move a lot, what happens to your furniture? The knobs fall off, the drawers won't stay in, they get skint. And one day she said, she, we were talking about, you know, that looks really bad. And I said, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. As long as the stuff is working, let's just keep the stuff we got. And I know you women are going, that sounds just like a man. <laughs> The Christian is awake, watchful. And all his life is lived in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come again. Now, I know some of you ladies are shaking your head. I don't tell my wife she can't buy things. Just so you know, I don't tell her. But we've come to realize that all that we have one day is going to be what? It's going to be left. It's going to be left. If I'm tied up to all the stuff in this world, I can't be looking for Jesus to come because I'm worried about all my toys and all my stuff that I can't keep my eyes on Jesus when He's going to come. Does that mark the way you live? His way of applying this? Do you live life not holding on to the world, but live all of your life anticipating the return of Jesus? Do you do that? That's the newsflash. That's the way a disciple, a follower of Jesus, lives his life. Wow. 
A disciple, a follower of Jesus, lives his life doing what? Looking for what? The one he's following to come get him. Second, Paul says, be sober. Verses 6 and 8. There's no indication here. Now, there's no indication the Thessalonians had a drinking problem, Brad. Alright? There's no indication they had a drinking problem. It's a metaphor. The word sober means to be self-controlled. Paul says Christians are to be self-controlled. Christians are to exercise self-control in the use of the things of this world. Ah, I didn't say you couldn't have things of this world, did I? But you must exercise what? Self-control. Christians are to exercise self-control in the use of the things of this world. You may be asking, how does that fit into living life in light of Jesus coming back? If you think and live as if this world is all there is, what are you trying to do? You're going to try and get as much of it as you can, right? Listen, if this is all there is, I'm going to get all I can get, right? That's the way we think. It's the attitude of he he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen one of those t-shirts? First time I seen it, I thought, really? Is that the way you're going to live your life? Who dies with the most toys wins? I think what Paul said, was it? He said, sudden destruction comes. Christian, because you believe in the return of Jesus, you're to be sober. You're to be self-controlled in the way you use the things of this world. Because this life is not all there is. And this is not the most important thing. There are things that will last forever that matter more than this world. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Here's my challenge to you. Learn to use the world and love Jesus. And not love the world and use Jesus. I'll say that again. Learn to use the world. Learn to get what you need to sustain your life and promote and advance the gospel. And love Jesus while you're doing that. But don't love the world and use Jesus to get what you want. Does that make sense? That's the way we're to live our lives. Because you believe in the return of Jesus, you're to be sober. You're to be self-controlled the way you use the things of this world. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having not put on, excuse me, having put on the breastplate of faith. Christian, you live by faith. You live by believing the Word of God, trusting in the promises of God. You live by putting your trust in what God says in His Word. Here's where you, Christian, and I get off course. We try to... And measure this life by what we experience and what we see instead of trusting God. The Christian life is learning to trust the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Let me illustrate that for you. And this is going to be a little, I warn you, this will be a little, a little shocking. What if you had been one of those parents at Sandy Hook Elementary School? You know what I'm talking about, right? What if you'd been one of the parents, one of those children there? Would you measure the love of God by the killing of innocent children? Would you say, that's how we measure God's love? If you did, you'd be totally confused about the love of God, would you not? What if 2,000 years ago you'd been standing on a hillside watching your son be crucified and you didn't have God's Word to inform you as to what was going on? What would you think? Would you come to the conclusion that the love and mercy of God was being demonstrated in order to save the souls of millions of people? 
If you didn't have the Word of God, you would say that there is no God. But the Bible teaches you to look at the cross differently, does it not? Paul says, in order to be ready for the return of Jesus, you live by faith, you live by trusting in the promises and the Word of God. Notice verse 8 again. He says, you nurture love. You want to be ready for the return of Jesus? Be loving. You're like, I can do that one. I can do that one. Love God. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Love the members of this congregation. Love your spouse. Love the weird uncle that's in your family. Remember me talking about that a few weeks ago? This can be hard to do, right? Because, you know, you're, you're called to love sinners, and sinners can do what? They can, they can hurt you, right? Even when you're trying to love them. You ever had that happen? You're trying to love someone and they hurt you? But if you want to be ready for Jesus, Paul says, be loving. Notice what else he says there. Nurture hope. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The salvation of you here is not the past aspect of your salvation when you were justified, declared no longer separated from God. Or is it the present aspect of you becoming more like Jesus? Instead, it's the future aspect. One day when you will be glorified, you'll receive your glorified bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when this old lowly, short, fat body gets transferred. I look forward, not because I'm physically, I, I just look forward to that day. It's not about the physical change. It's about the change from this life to eternal life with Jesus. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, Jesus will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Most of us, we use that word hope, right? And some of you students are going, I hope I passed all my end of grade exams, right? You're hoping that was the case, right? That's not what this hope is. It's confidence in God of a coming salvation, a full, complete salvation. The idea is that the Christian is protected by the fact that Jesus is coming again. So how do you prepare for the return of Jesus? You're watchful, you live self-controlled lives, you live by faith, and you live in love, and you live in hope. Verses 9 and 10. Let's look at these last three verses quickly. If you're outlining, here's what it will be. Fearlessness about the day of the Lord. Fearlessness about the day of the Lord. Some of these Thessalonian Christians were afraid of the return of Jesus. Does that seem odd to you that a Christian would be afraid that Jesus was going to come? I've talked with some Christians who were terrified that Jesus was going to come because they know that judgment's coming. And Paul clears that up. He says, For God has not destined you for what? Wrath, but to obtain salvation through who? Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Notice first there, God's appointment. God has destined, He's appointed us, has not destined us or appointed us for what? Wrath. God has not appointed His people to endure 
the coming judgment that's going to come when Jesus comes. God has given us what? Instead, salvation through who? Jesus. God has rescued us from judgment and wrath, and He did so through Christ. Christian, rejoice and long for the return of Jesus. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about because you're saved from the judgment and wrath that accompanies that day. Wrath and judgment are going to come upon those who are what in darkness. But Paul says you're in the light. You have nothing to worry about. You have been delivered from the wrath to come because you have obtained the salvation that comes through Christ. Notice in verse 10, he says, Who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live. Jesus died for us, and He did so that we might live, and not only live, but live where? With Him. Jesus just didn't die so that we could be forgiven of sin. He died so that we might live with Him. Do you see there? He he died to save us from our sin, but there's much more to it than that. He died to save us from our sin and to live with Him. We get to live with Jesus for all eternity. Does that not cause you to think that this life is not all there is? What awaits us as believers is far more valuable than this life. Notice the words there, whether awake or asleep. That refers to our physical condition. Last week we were talking about it meaning what? Sleep is in the believer dies and he goes to sleep. This is a metaphor that refers to our physical condition. Whether we are alive when Jesus comes or whether we have died beforehand as we saw last week, we go to live with Jesus. What this means is that the time of death is beside the point. At the return of Jesus, the Christian living will not have an advantage over the Christians who have died. Both will equally receive full salvation and get to live with Jesus. Let's look lastly at verse 11 quickly. If you're outlining... Here's what that will be. Encourage one another and build one another up. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul here in verse 11 uses the same word that he used where? Did you hear that word last week in chapter 4 verse 18? In 418 it was used to comfort those who were what? Grieving the loss of what? Fellow believers. In 511 he uses the word to encourage those who are what? Fearful about the return of Jesus. Do you see that? People were fearful of what happened to their loved ones, and then they're fearful about Jesus coming back. I don't know about you, but sometimes the world can be what? A cold, hard, and unfriendly place to live, right? We can easily get hurt by the world. Grieving the loss of a fellow believer is extremely painful. We can at times be fearful when we think about the return of Jesus And they're being judgment with that. God means for His church to be a place where we find support. He says, encourage, comfort, and build one another up. These things join together with the idea of loving one another. The word one another points us to that of being a mutual thing. It's not just me doing it to you, but it's you doing it back to me. I encourage you and build you up, and you do the same to me. No church can call itself Christian if it's not characterized by mutual encouragement and mutual building up and mutual love. Let's do some application here, and then we'll finish. Do you realize that you can be an encouragement to one another just by living like this life is not all there is? Do you realize that you can encourage someone by not living this life like this life is all there is? 
By living like there's nothing more important than the things that the world around you is working so hard to get. Do you realize that you can be an encouragement to one another just by doing that? Just by valuing Jesus more than anything in this world. I've been around people in the last ten years of my life that I watched them love Jesus. They lived in this world, but they were not consumed by this world. I want to tell you, that, that convicted me and it transformed my life. It actually encouraged me in my walk for Christ. How do I encourage another believer? You use the promises of Scripture to encourage them. You encourage one another with the promises of God. You do so knowing that the foundation of Christian faith and hope is that Jesus died and rose, that we might be redeemed and brought to live with Him. And when He comes, He'll take us to be with Him forever. We have nothing to fear. There, there can be nothing for us to fear when Jesus comes. Therefore, Paul says there in verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up these words. When there's days when you know another believer is struggling in this world, anticipating the return of Christ, it, how many of you ever said, I don't know what to say? You ever said that? I don't know what to say. There's plenty for you to say in here. Oh, so I use the Bible to encourage other believers? Absolutely. I've read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, hundreds, thousands of times in the last five years. Thousands of times have I read that verse. Is there someone you can encourage and edify this week with the Scriptures about the return of Christ? And let me say this quickly. For those of you here today who don't know Christ, do you fear the return of Jesus and the judgment that's going to come with that day? Sudden destruction for you? If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and placed your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you should not look forward to the return of Christ. Y'all have heard me say that several times. If you're lost today, that should be the last thing you want to happen. You have every right to fear the return of Jesus because His return means judgment for you. Destruction, eternal separation. It means eternal separation from God now and forever. But Jesus said today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you move from darkness to light. You move from anticipating and looking forward to Jesus instead of being fearful of that day. Let's pray.